are nearing the end of a series of conversations that we've had here on Sunday mornings based on the book of Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus, which is an, an epic account of God uh, leading the, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, the man who became known as Israel. His descendants were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God led them out, and we've been looking at the book that describes that great adventure. There are many, many themes from that a book, from that adventure that bleed into our lives, certainly that informed the New Testament. And we've been in this series for a while. I had somebody ask me the other day, <clears throat> are you going to be dead before we finish the book of Exodus? And I certainly hope that is not the case. Uh, we're going to wrap up several of the chapters together over the next couple of weeks. So we're getting very near the end of this story, but I don't want us to miss today <clears throat> because today uh, there's, there's just a profound truth for us that uh, I, I pray that God will apply to our hearts and lives and, and, and bring to mind, bring to our memory. Let's, uh, let, and speaking of that, let's, uh, let's pray right now. Father, we offer up our hearts and our minds and our ears to you this morning. We're listening. We thank you for what an incredible privilege it is to be invited into life with you, and it's almost unimaginable, but we, to, to participate with you. And that is the truth before us this morning. It's crazy, and it's hard to wrap our minds around, so we need your help today to uh, both comprehend it, but also uh, to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. God invites us into partnership with himself. Uh, this partnership is most, most intensely present in prayer. And this becomes vividly clear during the ministry of Jesus. The whole thrust of Jesus' ministry was discipleship, student training process. He was developing students who would be able to continue the work that they had seen him do. In fact, at one point, late in his ministry, he's kind of looking back, surveying his whole ministry, including the freaky, incredible uh, miracles that, that he performed, that the disciples had seen him do. And he said to them, you'll do even greater works than these. John 14, 12. We are invited to participate in God's activity, but the tragedy of our lives is that we often settle for something far more manageable. So we are in Exodus 32 this morning, and I want to survey how we got here. Um, Moses has this interaction with Pharaoh. There's a bunch of plagues. They get released. They're, they're, they they cross the Red Sea, and they wander in the desert for a little while until they get to a place uh, known as Mount Sinai. The scholars don't know where Mount Sinai is exactly. They camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then in Exodus chapter 20, Moses is invited up on the mountain by God. He goes up, and the mountain is kind of subsumed by a, a cloud of God's presence. And while Moses is up on the mountain with God, God gives him the 10 best ways to live, or the 10 commandments. And that was in Exodus chapter 
chapter 20. And then in addition to that, he gives them the first of a long laundry list, but this is the first download of Exodus 21 through 23, a bunch more regulations that help regulate and modify and and govern their lives together as a nation and as a people. Moses comes back down the mountain, reports to the people. They're very excited, and they have this covenanting ceremony, this agreement ceremony where they they agree they're going to be God's people. He's going to be their God. We'll do everything you say, the the people say, in response to hearing uh, what God's regulations that he has downloaded on them. And then Moses returns to the mountain, you know, maybe for uh, at least a second time, maybe a third time. He receives then instructions about how to build the tabernacle. And if you were here, we talked about that a little week, uh, a little bit. Two weeks from now, we're going to talk more about how the actual building of the tabernacle and priestly garments and, and how to set aside priests and consecrate them, all of that business. He gives them all of that. And he receives two actual stone tablets, which God himself had inscribed on them, the Ten Commandments. And while that's happening, trouble brews back in the camp at the foot of the mountain, the people that had remained at the foot of the mountain. Uh, And the people at the foot of the mountain are kind of drawn back to old habits, and they they make a golden calf to worship. And uh, they are engaged in this worship, and on the mountain, God lets Moses know, I think this is happening. And this is what chapter 32, our passage today, is about. So question number one, what in the world was happening here? Or materially, uh, this, it's obvious. They, they had collected the stuff appropriate to building an idol. They constructed that idol, and they were in the process of worshiping it. And look, this whole rigmarole would have been very familiar to them, all of it. The look of the idol, the practice of making it, the worship surrounding it, the revelry. By the way, when we start reading in a minute, you're going to hear that word revelry. And that term used here probably includes some sexcapades associated with the worshiping of some idols. All of that would have been familiar territory to these Israelites. They were schooled in these activities throughout their years in Egypt. This kind of activity was standard practice in the rest of the ancient world for worshiping your God. But spiritually, what were they doing? What's really happening here? And this is certainly part of what God wants us to get from chapter 32. So let's line it out, what what was going on spiritually. Let's start with verse 1. In verse 1, they were rejecting God's timing. Check this out. When the people saw, Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, remember that phrase, we'll get back to it later, and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Moses is taking too long, Aaron. We don't know what's going on. Let's, so let's do something else. How about a plan B? Let, let's, uh, let's do what we've always done. Let's do what everybody does. Let's take matters into our own hands. Now, fortunately, none of us ever feel this way. Fortunately, we don't get impatient with God's timing about stuff. We don't ever feel a little lost and wonder what's happening or why it's happening. Fortunately, Because when we try to act on those kind of feelings, it doesn't go well. So fortunately, that's an ancient person problem. 
The second thing that was happening here is they were rejecting God's uniqueness. And let's read verses 2 through 6 of Exodus 32. And this is one of the, one of the central uh, thrusts of the Bible, but certainly the book of Exodus. God's uniqueness. God's holiness. Verses 2 through 6, they were rejecting this. Let's go old school. Stand out of reverence for God's word. Aaron answered them. You remember they've come to Aaron and say, make us a God. Aaron answered them. Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Now, these would have been very valuable uh, uh, accoutrements. And there are some, some scholars who actually believe Moses is hedging here. He's thinking that when he asks for their gold earrings, they'll say, oh, okay, never mind. But that's not what happens, even if that's what Aaron was up to. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made an idol or fashioned an idol cast in the shape of a a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. That's interesting. We'll touch on this in a moment. But but there are scholars who believe that what they've done here is they fashioned a calf to represent Yahweh. They know that Yahweh has brought them out of Egypt. So this calf now, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. There are other scholars who believe, no, they've, they've, they're worshiping another god here. Next slide. Thank you. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, obvious uh, uh, moment of worship, and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You may be seated. They gathered gold, they fashioned it into the shape of a calf, and they held a great festival which included boisterous revelry. This is exactly the way they had been encouraged to worship in their years in Egypt. This is exactly how other religions worship their God. This was common. This was typical. This was not set apart. This did not demonstrate the uniqueness of God, quite the opposite. This was not holy. This was an impingement on God's holiness, on his uniqueness, on his complete otherness. You see, one of the main thrusts of God's education process of the people throughout these early months had been this. He'd been communicating to them, hey, I'm the God of the whole universe, and there's no God like me. I'm holy. You're my people, so you're also holy. You are not like the world around you. You don't act like they do. You don't worship like they do. That message had been a significant part of God's training for them and everything he's done. And this is still one of God's main thrusts in our lives. And whenever we are acting like the world around us, we are in danger of rejecting God's uniqueness, of rejecting our uniqueness. Third, they were rejecting God's manifestation of himself. Look again at verses 5 and 6. We just read. Now, remember, throughout this journey, God himself had chosen how he was going to appear to the people. Up to this point, it had been, if if you know this story or if you've been with us or if you follow this story, it had been fire, it had been smoke, it had been an overpowering voice. So when his people 
chose to bring their own version of God to life through a dumb idol. They were rejecting his method of demonstrating himself. What they wanted was something they could see and touch at their convenience. They also wanted a God who would let them live as they wished and have a good time when they wanted to and who wouldn't impose covenant requirements on them. They didn't want mystery. They wanted something more manageable. Fourth, they were rejecting God's command. This might be the most obvious. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the, in the shape of a calf. This was one of the common Egyptian gods, by the way. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, if you can believe that, and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. As I said, most who study this passage see a clear rejection of the second commandment. The second of the Ten Commandments was, don't make an image of me. Uh, It may be that what Aaron did here was to actually build a physical representation of Yahweh violation of the second commandment, but some also see a rejection of the first commandment. They may have bowed down to and worshiped what was another God altogether. So that's what happened. Second big question, why? Why did this happen? And let's add emphasis to that if we need it. I want you to remember, you know, not only did they see plagues, not only did they see God divide the Red Sea, but look, the cloud was still covering the mountain. All they had to do was look up to see God's abiding presence. Secondly, they were at this point being daily fed by manna, which they had no explanation for, no understanding of. In fact, the word manna means what is it? They knew it was from God. Third, there were 72 leaders who had gone partway up to the mountain just a few weeks earlier and had experienced a more intense, more intimate, up-close connection with God. They could have provided personal testimony. Those 72 were still in the camp. Finally, the events that we talked about a few weeks ago from chapter 24, where they had, you know, done that weird covenanting ceremony thing, they had declared just a couple of weeks early, earlier, we will do everything you command. How in the world did this happen? Why in the world did they resort to this kind of activity? I'm going to give you the, 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 the quick Bible answer. Then later, we're going to unpack it a little bit. But God gives the first hint about why this happened in verse 7. We just read it. He called them corrupt. Now, let's read verses 9 and 10. He's going to add to this idea of corruption. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone (laughs) so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, that I'll make you a great nation. Uh, Corrupt, stiff-necked. You know, there's a one-word description for this. The Bible calls it sin. And to underscore that, 
We're going to skip down from verse 10 all the way to the end of chapter 32. At the, in in the, the last four verses of chapter 32, Moses has actually come back off the mountain. We'll get back to that and read it in a minute. But he's come back off the mountain. He's interacted with the people. And then he goes back up on the mountain to get some more instructions from God. And in those four verses, he uses the word sin six times. Next slide. Thank you. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I'll go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses here offering himself up as a a kind of substitute for the people, but Moses is not good enough to be this kind of a substitute. There will come one who is, but it's not Moses. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Make no mistake, God makes it really clear that what has happened here is sin, right? In short, sin is how this happened, and this is exactly how sin operates. So let me give you the giddy-up of sin as if any of us need to be educated. First of all, sin gets impatient with God. What are you doing, God? Sin wants another plan. It invents another plan. Secondly, sin wants control. It wants things in its own hands. Sin wants to be able to manipulate its gods. It wants full control over its future and its resources. Look, God asks for singular allegiance. And by the way, God encourages us not to be bound by circumstances. This isn't to punish us. This is to free us. So third, sin wants immediacy. Sin wants pleasure and comfort right now. Instead, God offers participation in his activity. God wants us to partner with him in his work in the world. Sin wants something more manageable. I want you to see this again. Nathan, bring that slide up. God wants us to partner with him in his work in the world. The tragedy of our lives is that we often settle for something far more manageable. All right, now in terms of God offering us partnership with himself, let's go back now and back up to the middle of the chapter and look at Moses on the mountain because he offers a striking counterpoint to the activity of the people that's happening at the foot of the mountain. Moses shows us maybe the most remarkable example of our participation with God in all of the Bible. So we're going to read verses 11 through 14. This is incredible. Let's make sure we're awake for this one. And once again, let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Uh, Exodus 32, 11 through 14, listen to this. This is, a, this is a, a signal passage of scripture. If you're the kind of person that highlights stuff in your Bible, you might want to highlight this one. But Moses sought the favor of, his, of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Listen to the argument he's making. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, 
relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Next slide, Nathan. Remember, your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. You may be seated. Moses pleaded with God. He made a forceful argument based on God's own character, based on his previous actions and promises, and based on his reputation. And in response, God changed his mind. God relented. Let's hit the pause button for a second. The Hebrew word here is nihom. It means relent or to change your mind. God changed his mind because of Moses' prayer. God allowed Moses to affect his thinking. He allowed Moses to be a participant in his governance of the nation of Israel. God let Moses literally influence the future of the nation. So wait, (laughs) someone has got to be thinking, isn't God in control? I thought God was sovereign, purposing the beginnings and the ends. I thought you believed that, Pastor Ed. And I do believe that. God is sovereign. This is freaky, but in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God is sovereign. Well, Ed, is God sovereign or or are we making real meaningful choices here? Does God already have the ends purposed or do we actually influence what is to come? Do, Do our prayers turn the heart of God? And it turns out the answer to all of those questions is yes. (laughs) God already has the ends purposed, and we actively participate with him in shaping the future of our children, of our neighbors, of our jobs, of our health. God has the ends purposed, and we actively participate in shaping the future. Say what? How do those two things fit together? (laughs) So let me admit up front, I I can't fully explain this. It's above my pay grade. But I'm going to give us something this morning just to look at that might be helpful. To illustrate our future shaping capability, let's offer Moses as Exhibit A. As a result of Moses' pleading, God nihomed. I repeat, God relented when Moses prayed. But if you look later in Moses' life, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a final sermon. And in chapter 10, he's actually recounting this specific incident. And in chapter 10, verse 10, Moses gives this summary. Now I had stayed on the mountain 40 days 
and 40 nights as I did the first time. He's talking about this incident. And the Lord listened to me at that time also. And then he adds this, look at this. It was not his will to destroy you. Uh, Do you know the Bible transliteration, the message? It's a beautiful kind of rewriting of the Bible. It's written by uh, an author named Eugene Peterson. I think Eugene Peterson explained it best. He said that, don't miss this, he said that prayer is in the middle voice. In fact, Peterson reminds us that this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Let me explain. There are many, uh, for example, Hindu settings, most Muslim settings, and many animistic religion settings where people pray very, very actively. They cry out to their God loudly and with protestations. They may even be elaborately emotional, and they are incredibly earnest. Sometimes when Christians witness this, they're ashamed because of what they perceive as their own lack of devotion. This is very active prayer. I like what Pastor Tyler Statton said about this. He reminds us that the the Bible records active prayer also. In fact, Statton says this, the Pharisees prayed in the context of personal morality, believing that if the whole Jewish nation could be obedient to the Torah, the Old Testament law, and it's 613 commands for just a single day, and this was a belief that they carried, uh, then the kingdom of God would come. The underlying presumption, listen, is that there's a code we can crack. There's some combination of really meaning it plus praying like you really mean it that will get God's ear, end quote. This is active praying. But in a Buddhist setting, for example, Prayer is a very different thing. In that setting, they pray by emptying themselves. This is also true in some Hindu settings. They seek absolute surrender through quiet and contemplation. They seek to be beyond their emotions, to let go of themselves, to let go of their own mind and their own thinking. In other words, to be completely passive, this is passive prayer. But Jesus prayed in what Eugene Peterson called the middle voice. Now listen, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the Greek language actually had a grammatical tense called the middle voice. We don't really use this voicing in English, but it was prominent in ancient Greek. In the active voice, I, the subject, take action. In the passive voice, I, the subject, am acted upon. But in the middle, the middle voice offers a third kind of action. For example... I take advice. The middle voice means I am an active participant, but the action does not begin with me. I'm joining the action of another. I am amplifying. I'm influencing the action, affecting the outcome, but it is not my action per se. Eugene Peterson explains it more fully. Nathan, bring this on the screen. I I want you to see this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, Prayer and spirituality feature participation, the complex participation of God and the human, his will and ours. We do not abandon ourselves to the stream of grace and drown in the ocean of love, losing our identity. 
On the other hand, we, we do not pull strings that activate God's operation in our lives, subjecting God to our assertive identity. We neither manipulate God, active voice, nor are manipulated by God, passive voice. We are involved in the action and participate in its results, but do not control or define it, middle voice. Prayer takes place in the middle voice. We are invited to participate with God, literally. And this, this is where real power is defined, suburban Americans. This is where our power is found, in participating with God. And this is why, look, this is why obedience is such a big deal. It's not because God is like some tired parent in the grocery store who doesn't want his kid bugging him. Obedience is important to God because our actions influence our future and the future of others. Obedience is important to us, and God knows that. We participate in God's activity. And this is why, this is why prayer is so critical. We'll conclude with that in a moment. First, let's take a look at Aaron. Let's do this quickly, but Aaron is a really interesting case through this whole thing. Uh, We're going to look at verses 15 through 29 now. So Exodus 32, uh, chapter 32, verses 15 through 29. Moses turned and went down the mountain. He's had this interaction with God uh, with two uh, tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua, who'd been partway up on the mountain with Moses, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses said, wait, it's not the sound of victory. That's not the sound of defeat. That's the sound of singing that I hear. Next slide, Nathan. When Moses approached the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Let's keep going, Nathan. Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me gold and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control so, and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he, he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, all right, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And you're just going to hear how fierce this business of holiness and sin is here. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each, look, each person strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other. You got to... I don't know what was happening here. I don't know if there was some testimony being asked for, the examining witnesses. Each killing, even his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you guys have been set apart to the Lord today. 
For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. This is classic, isn't it? <laughs> Aaron deflects and tries to absolve himself of all responsibility. It's not my fault, Moses. I don't know how this calf happened. Now, in Aaron's defense, as I said earlier, there are a number of indications in the text that he was re a reluctant participant in this. That phrase I told you to remember from verse 1, they gather around Aaron. Well, that same phrase is used in a completely different incident, completely different context in Numbers, chapter 16, verse 3, and it's translated, they came as a group to oppose. In other words, it seems like the crowd saw Aaron as an obstacle. Still, he caved. He gave in. And then he refused to take responsibility. Just like us, Aaron was offered the job of future shaper. He was invited to participate with God, but I believe it required too much courage for Aaron. So he settled for something more manageable to please the people around him. Let's wrap up by returning to our second question we asked earlier. Why did this happen? We said we're going to dig into the sin business a little more. Let's do that now and then we'll finish. Why did the people want gods to go before us? At its root, it was sin, as we said, but let's spell it out a little. I mean, the answer was partly because of just the habit of idolatry. This is what they'd learned. It was partly a matter of Moses' absence. Moses was the one who knew what Yahweh was doing. And it was partly a matter of too much time since Yahweh had made himself abundantly present for us. You know, we want Taco Bell. We don't, we don't want to wait for hours for our food. But I love... Doug, Stewart, Doug Stewart's analysis of this. Doug Stewart has written my favorite commentary on this book, and he says this, and I want you to see this. Nathan, put this on the screen for us. It happened mostly because of something that continues to plague us today, even those of us who follow Christ, an inability to see that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical and visible world. An inability to see that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical and visible world. This is a principle that God spends our entire lives trying to ingrain in us. Especially those of us who are pretty good at organizing ourselves in the physical material world. He's constantly reminding us that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical, visible world. And this is why prayer is so critical. We participate with God in the spiritual world through prayer. This is why Paul in the New Testament would say to his friends in the city of Corinth, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We fight with the weapons of prayer and fasting and obedience. And this is why Jesus introduced an entirely different kingdom than the one the Jews were anticipating. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman rule and establish a kingdom of free, self-governing Jewish people that stretched from the Mediterranean all the way to the Jordan River. But Jesus came 
to overthrow the power and influence of sin in every heart that would accept him and to establish a kingdom whose borders included the very edges of your heart and mine. God invites us to participate with him in his work in the world. The tragedy of our lives is that we often settle for something far more manageable. Let's conclude this morning with a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask as we do so, would you stand with me? Let's pray. As we go to prayer this morning, I want you each to think of that thing or things which are most stressing, most worrisome, most grievous, most difficult to bear. I want you to think of the person or two or three who are most important in your life, closest to the center of your heart, closest either to the joy or maybe the wound of your heart. I want us to recognize and grab hold this morning of the profound truth. We participate with God in those affairs. Let's pray. Father, I want you to bless us. We're bold enough to ask in, this, in these next few moments. and We're going to join our hearts with yours. And we're going to plead our cause. Jesus, we heard you when you said that greater stuff would happen as a result of our lives than happen through yours. That's hard to believe. <laughs> Help us with our unbelief this morning. For some of us, Lord, we're thinking of our parents. Some of us are thinking of our children. Some of us are thinking of a significant other. Or the ache over the lack of a significant other. Some of us are thinking of a financial loss, the death of a loved one, the death of a dream, the recognition that our life is far less than we imagined. And right now we just set those before you. And now Jesus, in this moment, we take up what you offered. The incredible ability to participate with you. And we pray, we beseech you, we plead, we, we, we make our case on behalf of the one we love, on behalf of the cause of concern, on behalf of the physical ailment, on behalf of the need, we plead our cause. Hear us, Lord, each of us, as we pray. Thank you, Lord. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen.